No mai, haere mai, kia ora tato. Welcome to the seventh episode in the Auckland Writers' Festival Winter Series. Ko Paula Morris, toko ingoa. My name is Paula Morris and I am your host for this remote salon, speaking to you as ever from Grays Avenue in the heart of Auckland. The Winter Series is made possible by our generous technical partner, Auckland Live, and by the support of Copyright Licensing New Zealand. Now, this series is free to view, so if anyone asks you for credit card information, please ignore them. And do not click on any links in the comments unless those links are supplied by the Auckland Writers' Festival. Now, this morning we have been experiencing a few little issues with YouTube, so if you are trying to watch this on YouTube and experience any difficulties at all, please just go to the Auckland Writers' Festival Facebook page and you can watch the episode live there. Now, the books we're discussing today are available as usual for sale or order. Just click on the buy the book link in the episode description. You're very welcome to make comments or ask questions throughout the episode. Just use the chat functions on Facebook and YouTube if it's working. I'll try to include your questions if it's at all possible. In this hour, I'll chat with each of our writers about their latest book. We'll hear a short reading from each writer. And towards the, the end of the episode, all three will return for a final question or two. Unfortunately, due to illness, one of our scheduled guests, Maggie O'Farrell, is not able to join us today. But we hope to include her and her incredible novel, Hamnet, in a future episode. So please join me in welcoming today's writers. Uh, in Vermont, Anyu, author of the novel Braised Pork. Hello, kia ora, Anyu. Hi, everyone. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Uh, in Sandringham, and not Royal Sandringham, I'm afraid, but Sandringham in Auckland, is Anthony Burt, who will be discussing The Mirror Steamed Over, Love and Pop in London, 1962. Tēnā koe, Anthony. Kia And from uh, her lockdown breakout in the Hawke's Bay, Christine Fernihoe, author of Mid-Century Living, The Butterfly House Collection. Kia ora, Christine. Morning, Paula. <laughs> i just take this break to have a quick cough because, of course, I didn't cough at all until we uh, went live. So kia ora and welcome to you all. Now, Anthony and Christine, I look forward to talking to you both in a little moment. So don't go away. Our first writer today is Anyu. She was born and raised in Beijing, although currently she's stranded in Vermont. She's on lockdown there. Uh, Anne has lived in New York, in Paris, and Hong Kong, and has an MFA from NYU. Her wonderful debut novel is Braised Pork, which she wrote in English. It's been described as part domestic noir and part esoteric folk myth, moving between metropolitan Beijing with its unhappy marriages, hazy polluted air, and expensive property market, and a stranger, more hallucinogenic realm of Tibetan myth and folk culture. Embrace Pork, a young woman, set adrift by the death of her husband, makes a journey from an apartment with too many rooms to a world with no barriers and a reconciliation with what is lost and what is left behind. Kia ora and welcome, Anyu. Hi, thank you. Um, um, let's talk about Jia Jia, your main character. Now, she's a painter who's put aside her work during her marriage to an older and wealthier man. And after his death and the financial shock of his will, she can't stop thinking about a sketch she found that he had done near his body of a figure with a body of a fish and the head of a man. Why is that figure, that fish man figure, so compelling to Jaja? Um, well, this is going to be a long answer, so I'll try to make it short. Uh, but so Jaja was in sort of a loveless contractual marriage. Um, with her husband and this surprise uh, sort of sends her into a state of confusion where she and disorientation where she doesn't know what to do. And before his death, she had dedicated her life um, to this marriage and she had given up. She was an artist before and she had given up her art and all she had was, was this marriage. And now that he was gone, leaving behind no other clue besides this drawing of a fish man, it's, it, becomes the only thing that she can really hold on to. And even though she never loved her husband, um, it, her, her sort of only way forward now in her mind is to find out why her husband died. Um, so, and to find out why her husband died, uh, she had to go with the only clue, which is the fish man, which leads her on this journey where she 
you know, tries to paint the fish man, tries to look for the fish man, um, and eventually tries to retrace her husband's footsteps in Tibet, um, all in search of what this creature means. Um, the, the description of her trip to Tibet is fantastic. And it, it had me, of course, Googling every place you mentioned to, to look at amazing pictures. Um, I'm quite interested in the clash that you present in your novel between the contemporary and the traditional, if you like, or the lack of belief and then the, the quest for belief or understanding. And you have many scenes where there is that sort of contemporary traditional clash. I, I'm thinking of when she goes with her new, the man she's seeing, Leo, to his parents for Chinese New Year. And when they find it, when they think she's a divorcee, they're fine with it. When they find out she's a widow, they're very worried because they say widows are bad luck. And that clash between generations and, and cultures is something that, that infiltrates your whole book. And I wondered how difficult would it be for a character like Jaja, who is very much a, a contemporary young woman, you know, in her early 30s, to embrace the, the mystery of the fish man and the notion of the world of water and the, the non-real things she encounters in Tibet. Um, well, I don't think the, the mythical side of this has, um, has necessarily have to be sort of the traditional side of what you're talking about. I think there's so much modern myth that seeps into urban life um, that I find entirely fascinating. And I think that for her, urban life itself is strange in a way um, and is disorienting in a way that this myth of the fish man can sometimes feel, or the, the myth of the whole world of water can sometimes feel more real to her. Um, and the answers that she can't really find in reality, uh, she could perhaps find in this more surreal world. And then the two, at least for her and her experience, um, are not so separated. And the, the line between the two are not entirely clear um, and as she moves forward in the novel it becomes even more muddled um, and I think that's that's one of or at least for her it's the only way for her to to feel liberated from what she was the life she had been living before as well as, as the immediate life um, after she had lost her husband. It also permits her a, a return into her own creativity doesn't it because mm -hmm she's becoming much more instinctive and much more tapped into her subconscious. But what you're talking about are, are parts of the novel that could be described as surreal, some are dreams, obviously, but some are, are quite sort of magical incidents when she's painting on um, a client's wall, the water comes to life for her. Now, many writers object to the term magic realism. They see there's something that's imposed on their work. I have seen your book described as magic realism and I wondered how you feel about that particular term in relation to this story. Uh, I think that term is a bit, um, I myself is also a bit confused by that term sometimes. I don't really know what, the, what exactly it means and what boundaries um, there are around that term. Uh, I see a lot of authors being described as magic realists and um, they write in, you know, completely different styles. Uh, so I, I never really tried to write a magic realist novel. Um, it just, to me, it, it's a way to express some of the more um, inexpressible things with the more... With, with reality, with, with things that we are familiar with. Uh, I think to understand, you know, the world around us, especially during these times, we need to reach more into the imagination, into the more surreal in order to try to make sense of, of what's real around us, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so when, after Jaja's husband dies and the will is read and she realizes that she has very little left, that notion of no longer having any money or the protection of it really exposes her in, in a, a big city like Beijing. And you have some fantastic scenes when she feels very humiliated by various shop assistants. And I wondered if the materialism of contemporary Beijing is something that you feel is part of what's oppressing her as a character and something she needs to escape or understand in a different way. 
the short answer is yes, I think so. Um, not only the materialism of modern Beijing, but also um, this notion of uh, the need for stability in more traditional thoughts, um, which was partly what led to her decision to marry him in the first place. Um, so I, I think she had grown up believing in you know, financial stability and in you know, a man who can give her a more, uh, I guess, a, a life that, she, that that's more predictable because of her past and her husband's and her, uh, and her I'm sorry, and her parents and the trauma that they had caused her. Um, she never believed in love the way her parents did, uh, perhaps. And being shown that none of her beliefs growing up um, were exactly correct, uh, you know, when he died, when her husband died, that in itself um, suppresses her in a way. Uh, and then combined with now having to reorientate herself in you know, a materialistic modern world, I think both of those tensions come together to, to really, I guess, give her a hard time in the novel. Absolutely. Would yeah. you read to us from the novel, please? Yes. Water. Um, yeah, I'll read from chapter three. Uh, I suppose it doesn't need much context. Um, you've already talked about what the book talked about what the book is about, but basically before this, her husband dies mysteriously. And yeah. When Dada woke, it was still dark. She sat up and swept for her slippers with her feet. They were not there. She reached a bit further, but found nothing. Looking down at the floor, she discovered that it, is not, it did not exist anymore. And what replaced it was the surface of a deep sea, as if she was sitting on the edge of a ship, watching the reflection of the starless sky in the water. The darkness rippled like silk. She lifted herself from the bed and stepped onto what used to be the floor, falling into a sudden wet chill that was surely cold water. She immediately turned to grab for the bed, but it was no longer above her. Submerged in the water, she searched for anything to hold on to. She held her breath and swam deep, deeper. Time became indistinct and irrelevant. Jia did not know in what direction she was swimming. She couldn't see her body. If she was traveling down, when she reached the bottom of her building, would she find the ground again? It was worth a try, she thought. After what felt like a long time, a white ray of light penetrated the water. The sun, it must be the sun rising in the distance. Refracted, the light seemed alien, as though it belonged in a different dimension. But Yaya swam towards it anyway, pulling at and ripping off her pajamas, crying for help, her voice muffled. As she was nearing the light, she spotted a small she spotted a small silver creature beneath her, swimming around in circles. She thought she could make out a tiny fish with a sharp tail, shining like glitter. It swam wildly, a fry just learning how to flap its fins. Yaya shifted her focus back to the light and pushed towards it, leaving the silverfish behind. The light grew brighter. She rose out of the water, finding herself sitting on the floor of her apartment, naked, pajamas in a heap, frozen to the core. The morning sun pierced the blind. The sky was a pale blue now, and the group of middle-aged women were already gathered outside the park, dancing to disco tunes. Jia's eyes gradually adjusted to the light. She was shaking. With an automatic gesture, she reached for the drawing on the bedside table. Relieved to find it still dry, she leaned her head against the bed and studied the fish man. She saw lifelessness in its eyes, like prey that was being hunted and had already given up. Yaya folded the drawing, though she was unable to erase the image from her mind. The water, what was it? She couldn't remember what it looked like anymore, only the stinging cold that it had left on her skin. The heater must have broken during the night. A bitter chill remained. The apartment was too big. She had to move out, she decided, as soon as she could. She couldn't bear being alone in this place. 
Yaya couldn't remember the last time she had admitted, even to herself, that she was truly afraid of something. It wasn't because she never experienced fear, because of course she did, but she had learned very young that her, that her vulnerabilities would only lead to more trouble for her family, more worry for her grandmother, more tears for her aunt, more concerned late night whispers between the two of them. The day that Jiajia's mother died, she had just started middle school. That evening, peeping through the door to the bedroom where her grandmother wept into her pillow in silence, her legs hanging from the edge of the bed, Jiajia had learned to do the same. Now she tried to get up, but found herself unable to summon the energy to rise. She wrapped the duvet around her body and sat for hours on the wooden floor, wishing that the day would stop for a moment and wait for her. She closed her eyes and searched for memories of her mother. She hadn't done this in a long time. The memories were fragmented and faint, just as they always were. Jiajia was sure that these memories had felt like reality once, that at a distinct moment in the past, there had been an intensity and lucidity to them. But when? She couldn't say anymore. She could not remember the details, only the existence of details. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, in that extract, you, you mentioned uh, Jaja's grandmother and mother, and I wonder if we could talk a little bit about those relationships in the novel. I mean, we see her with her grandmother, her aunt, her father, her stepmother, and all of them in a way present confinement. So I was thinking the confinement of space when she goes back to live with her grandmother and aunt, or the confinement of money and expectation, which she associates around her father and his new wife. There were also a number of people in the novel who disappear or choose to disappear. I mean, not just her husband, but her mother, as you mentioned, her mother has died, her father who leaves the family, her uncle who's imprisoned, the wife of the man she meets in Tibet who's disappeared and he's looking for her. And I wondered, is that something that, that Jaja fears herself, that fear of disappearing or her real self disappearing? Uh, I think to Jaja, she, there, there is definitely a sense of that, that, that fear, but also for her, I think she, more than that fear, she needs answers um, as to why these people have been disappearing from her life, especially. Um, and, as we find out, a lot of these disappearances uh, are related to, at least in, in the book, the world of water. And I guess to different people, um, the world of water is something that they they are searching for in different ways. So some some people, you know, are successful in their search. Some people feel like it's inevitable and it was the only thing that they can do. And some other people um, spend their whole lives trying to look for it, yet um, don't manage to find it and have to look for another way to escape or to disappear or, or you know to to be absent from either their reality their world that they're living or somebody else's world and in this case for example like Jaja's father um had never really aspired to to follow you know her mother into the world of water but he um finds that he couldn't stay static in, in, in his life after her mother, Jaja's mother disappeared um, or after she became absent in his life. So she, so then he had to disappear from his family in the way that he knew best. Um, and then in the way that he felt like was the most natural or needed at the time. Uh, so for Jaja, it was, it's, I, I think it's more about chasing after people who had disappeared than um, fearing disappearance herself. Uh, I think in her, in her journey towards looking for these people, um, this wish to, to find what has been gone or what has, or to dissect what has been left behind uh, is, is, is overpowers her fear of, of getting lost um, from those around her. And the title of the book is more about connect, connection, isn't it? About what's shared between people, a meal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think having a meal um, with another person is one of the most intimate things that we can do. Um, so that image really is really, really powerful to me. And 
as it is, I suppose, to Jia And whenever you, whenever Graceport does come up, or the very few times it does, um, it's about connection or or disconnection, um, you know, on on a table and and like and the emotional complexities um, behind you know everything that she's going through. Yeah. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm afraid we do have to move on. But but please and don't go away. Stay close by because um, well, hopefully we'll get to talk some more at the end of this episode. Kia ora and thank you very much. Thank you. So our next guest today is Anthony Burt. Anthony is an art historian, a journalist and critic who has lived in Berlin and London and now lives in Auckland, where he is a board member for the Michael King Writers' Centre. Well known for his art criticism in magazines, including Art Forum International, Anthony is the author of Model World, Travels to the Edge of Contemporary Art, which was shortlisted for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards in 2017. His new book is The Mirror Steamed Over, Love and Pop in London, 1962, the story of three outsiders associated with the Royal College of Art at a time of cultural change, artistic experimentation, and their own personal reinventions. Tenakwe, Anthony. Hi, Paula. Thank you for joining us. Now, two of the three people at the centre of your engrossing book are British, the artist David Hockney, and the novelist Anne Quinn. And one is a New Zealander who arrives in London in the late 50s as Barry Bates, but becomes the artist we now know as Billy Apple. What brought you to this particular trio and this particular year? Yeah, but I mean, it really started in a lot of ways with um, the chapter about Billy in this model world, which had actually been adapted from a profile I'd written about Billy for Metro magazine here in Auckland. And I'd known, I have known Billy for a really long time. And as we were working on this profile, um, he had told me the story of his relationship with this young writer, Anne Quinn, who'd been a secretary in the painting school at the Royal College at the time that he and his close friend, David Hockney, were studying there. And Quinn had helped um, Billy, or Barry as he was then, out of a, of a pretty deep hole, really, which was that he needed to write a dissertation to get his diploma from the Royal College and um, either didn't want to do it himself or didn't quite have the, the kind of writing capabilities to do it. So he essentially commissioned um, Quinn to write it for him. And as a result of that, they started a relationship. And as I kind of dug into Anne's story a little bit more, I realised that um, she had become a very interesting and important novelist in the 60s and early 70s in the UK, and that her first book, uh, Berg, had been about a man who changes his name to return to his hometown to essentially try and murder his estranged father. And, of course, at the end of that year, Barry became Billy. And so I became very fascinated by these relationships between these people and these questions around the performance of identity and what it means to reinvent yourself. And of course, you know, it's, it's pretty well known that that um, Billy w was and is close with David Hockney, his fellow student. And so this was really the period where Hockney was becoming the Hockney that the world would come to kind of know and celebrate. So I kind of thought there must have been something in that triangle that was that was worth exploring in terms of these these questions of of identity and reinvention. And then I became very curious as to why that happened there and then. Um, so it became a kind of deep dive into a particular moment, I guess, um, in and around the Royal College at, at that moment. And New York is also an important destination for your your protagonist and your book. I was fascinated to read about one of my favourite poets, Frank O'Hara, and his connections with them through the American artist Larry Rivers. Now, why did Larry Rivers have such an, a big impact on Apple and Hockney? Yeah. Um, so Rivers is this, is this very fascinating character, I think, who um, was sort of 10 years older than, than Billy and David. Um, so by the time they encountered him, he was kind of uh, getting on into his late 30s, I guess. Um, but he really, as an artist, he fell between, I guess, that that classical period of the abstract expressionists with, you know, Pollock and de Kooning and the rest of them, and what later became the kind of high pop of, of New York with Warhol and, and others. And, and Rivers really fell in that gap. But uh, Billy had always been very... Um, open and honest about the impact that Rivers had had on him 
because in late 61, Rivers had given a talk at the Royal College. Now, he'd actually he'd moved by that point to Paris uh, with his um, Welsh um, fiance, a, a young woman called Clarice Price. And Clarice and Larry had decided to go to London to get married. And so while they were in London, Larry was obviously invited to give this talk at the Royal College. Billy always remembers this as being a huge kind of um, shaping moment for him. And um, it became essentially that the talk became the subject of the dissertation that Quinn wrote for him. So again, I became very fascinated by him and then his relationships with Frank O'Hara at the time um, became, were obviously very formative for Rivers himself, you know, in terms of his, the way that he had found his, his place within the New York art world in the 50s. But of course, Frank O'Hara was also, as well as a poet, was a very good curator and art critic himself and had been involved in a couple of really seminal shows that had toured the UK at the time. Uh, one was a, a kind of posthumous retrospective of Jackson Pollock's work and the other was a show called The New American Painting, which had toured Europe in 58 and 59. And so there were all these kind of amazing confluences that started to happen around that time between the New York of O'Hara and Rivers and this younger generation of British artists who were very much looking across the Atlantic at that time for um, influence, for inspiration at a time when London was still sort of emerging out of austerity and, and still felt a little fusty compared to what was going on in New York. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you to go to your reading um, sooner rather than later. So I think we'll do it now because I have some follow-up questions from it. So would you, would you mind reading to us from sure. The Mirror Steamed Over? Sure. So I thought I would just read from the start because this is really where um, this kind of dive or down the rabbit hole of, of the Royal College in 1962 starts. Just after his 24th birthday, he's already recognisable as the artist the world will know and celebrate, shirtless on the beach with a cap perched on his head, a cigar held in place by pursed lips. The sun is high and broad. Uh, sorry, the sun is high and his broad, flattish nose protrudes from the cap's umbrella of shadow. The cigar silhouette drops dead straight from the wet lips, slicing his chin in two. One skinny arm presses against that of his friend, who's also bare-chested but slightly more solid, with the hint of a strong bicep. The friend, with no hat, already has the high hairline of a man who'll lose most of it later. Both have narrow patches of hair on their chests. The smoker is the woollier of the two, but only just. Their sunglasses are near identical, as if bought, as if bought together on the day, a two-for-one special on a nearby boardwalk. Behind them, in the distance, people mill in front of a seaside hotel, but no one comes near them. Two perfect hipsters stuck together in their American universe. Billy Apple, sitting in his Auckland dining room, looks at the photo for what must be the thousandth time. But the context today is abrasively different. A Christie's auction catalogue, half, half a page given over to the image of him and David Hockney, the cigar smoker, together on a New York beach in the summer of 1961. Apple has a double ambivalence about seeing his younger self when he was still known by his birth name, Barry Bates, in the catalogue. First, he's long been aggrieved about his comparative absence from histories of 1960s British art, and here his cultural status is reduced to Hockney's travel buddy. The second reason, though, is more complex. He was the publicist. He gave Chris the image and in that way asserted his existence while also relegating himself to secondary player as a walk-on role in his more famous friend's story. We sit at Apple's drink, at dining table drinking coffee. Early summer sunlight unfurls through the sash window and flops across worn yellow formica. Outside, I can see the northern stand of Eden Park, just a block away. As Apple turns the catalogue's pages, he lands on an entry for another of his contemporaries, a guy who became so successful he bought a castle in Scotland. He points at the reserves and rages about what a mediocre artist the man was. I laugh and it diffuses him. He grins too, the same smile as the young man's on the beach. I've known Apple since I was 23, the age he was when he first left New Zealand in 1959 as Bates and headed to the RCA to study graphic design. Just over three years later, he became Billy Apple, the living, breathing brand that came to define everything he's made and done since. Apple is now in his 80s, although he likes to date himself based on the creation of his new identity. By that measure, he turned 50 in 2012. It's at this age that artists start to talk more, in private at least, about legacies about looking back so they can be sure of their place in the future, their work entering the canon so as to give them some kind of immortality. 
Apple is obsessed with numbers, and that includes dates. He has another set of photographs of Bates and Hockney together in October 1961 at the wedding of an RCA student near Gizzi in Cornwall. In the images, the pair aren't long back from New York. In one, Hockney and Bates square up to the camera. Hockney's hair is longer than he usually has it, peroxided blonde, dark regrowth just pushing through. He's wearing a Union Jack waistcoat and no tie. Bates, by contrast, has his hair cropped short, and he wears the same sunglasses he had on that day at the beach. In the background, a man runs past the door of his mini, Michael Kuhlman, the RCA's general studies tutor, who'll play a vital role in Hockney's and Bates' story before the academic year is out. His car will also become part of one of Hockney's best-known paintings. For years, Apple had been unable to remember the exact details of the wedding until he finally recalled that the groom was a classmate of theirs called Adams. I managed to track down Michael Adams in the Seychelles. Apple was right. It was his wedding. Adams told me that the Union Jack waistcoat Hockney was wearing had actually been his. Hockney borrowed it and never gave it back. When Adams saw Hockney at the wedding, he asked why he'd bleached his hair. Because gentlemen prefer blondes, was the reply. Later that night, Adams remembers, Bates played jazz on the church bells, much to the approval of the vicar. Apple doesn't remember that, but he does recall almost freezing to death, sleeping on the floor of a stone building with Hockney. A year or so later, I tracked down a photo of it. It's an annex to Rose Cottage on Cornwall's Halligan Estate, where many of the guests um, stayed. Apple is pleased to know the, de the new details of the wedding. So as I usually do in these moments, I push him again on the nature of his relationship with Hockney. He's always been forthcoming to a point. He and Hockney are still in touch, emailing each other occasionally, or catching up when Apple shows with his London, London dealer and Hockney happens to be in town at the same time. But between 1959 and 1962, there were periods when they were very close. Hockney, the northern boy, and Bates from the former colonies were both outsiders when they arrived at the RCA. Hockney remembers meeting Bates because the New Zealander had started to spend much of his time hanging out in the painting school and that he thought he was a fascinating and droll character. The pair became friends. They stayed up late in their studios together. They travelled together. They made work together and they bleached their hair together. And in 1962, they almost failed school together. Did they sleep together? Apple says no, but Bates' girlfriend at the time, the soon-to-be-published novelist Anne Quinn, seemed to enjoy poking fun at how close the, the men were. Channeling Bates's voice as she described the impact of his 1961 trip to New York with Hockney, she wrote, this is a quote, and all those pretty boys, sure is easy to go queer over there. No, he's not. Sure, he slept around with men. That doesn't make him camp, though. Anyway, makes a change, doesn't it? Called round at 2am before going to Paris. Guess he was in love with me at one time. Went round together in New York until he shacked up with this guy. Yeah, we went blonde together. Died it overnight at some party, so they told me. Yeah, I guess I almost went queer. Didn't want to get too involved. These slobs over here, they might look camp, but that's as far as it goes. They don't know how to swing, man. That's end quote. I Google photos of Quinn on my phone and bring one up. In it, she's caught in a kind of rapture. Eyes turned upwards, her mouth open, a cigarette in her right hand. She has a round face, thick dark hair, heavy eyebrows, and everything in frenetic animation. The glow from an arched window blasting her with backlight. There's another one from the same photo shoot, less energetic, in which she sits in a chair reading pages of typed manuscript. I show them to Apple, but it's not how he remembers her. The photographs are, I later discover, taken too late. Bates and Quinn had already parted ways by then. I show him a more solemn image, a close portrait of her taken on a three-quarter angle, with short hair and an impassive stare, a high-necked sweater creeping upward and closing her in. It's the, cover from the, uh, it's the image from the cover of an edition of her first novel, Berg. That's her, Apple says. That's what she looked like then. Thank you, Anthony. Now, I'm ashamed to say that until I read your book, I hadn't heard of Anne Quinn or her colleague, uh, another young woman, Pat Kitchen, mm. who was publishing novels in the 60s, and I'm now very eager to read their work. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more about Berg, her first uh, experimental novel, and how it's placed or how it reflects those cultural currents of the early 60s. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was very interesting as, as I was working on this book because, again, for me, I hadn't encountered Anne's work until um, Billy pointed it out and I started to do a bit of digging about her past. And then in early 2018, there was a collection of um, of 
basically unpublished previous work of Anne Quinn, short stories and the fragment of her final novel when she died in 1973. And there was suddenly this resurgence of, of interest in her work. And she was really part of that set around B.S. Johnson and people like that as the 60s kind of evolved, um, young experimental writers in London trying to push the, um, the novel away from a kind of realist framework. And Berg was really her first attempt to do this. And really it was a book full of um, mirrors and reflections and um, kind of changed identities, I suppose. So the main character, Berg, reverses his name to Greb and then he returns to the seaside town where he encounters his estranged father who'd left him uh, when he was a young boy. But really the, the book unfolds as a series of kind of strange reflections and images. There's a ventriloquist's dummy, which becomes a kind of stand-in for both the father and the son. So there's this kind of heavy Oedipal element. But also it's, it's very clear, and other writers have, have touched on this as well, that she was heavily influenced at the time by Adi Lang and um, Lang's book, The Divided Self, had been published in 1960. Uh, so, you know, comfortably before Quinn started to work on Berg itself. And so it became very fascinating to me that she was engaged in this kind of milieu around these artists who were playing with the performance of identity and with mirror images and reflections, and that those themes and threads became so strong in her own work as well. Um, and in fact, it's even when you read about Quinn, there's absolutely nothing about her having been at the Royal College in the kind of Hockney era as well. That was a kind of a bit of a discovery for all of us, really. So, um, yeah, I, th I think she was a kind of fascinating figure who was well ahead of her time um, and wasn't kind of appreciated at the time for it. And it's only become since that we've been able to look back and realise how significant her work was. I'm definitely going to read her books. And for, for viewers who are interested, it's Anne without an E. Yeah. And it's Quinn with only one N. Correct. Can we also talk about Patty Kitchen? Because she married one of the artists studying yeah. at the same time at the RCA, Frank Bowling, which was hugely controversial. Why? Yeah, it was. So um, Frank Bowling was a, um artist who had moved in his late teens from what was British Guiana, so from the um, from the Caribbean to London, so he's part of the Windrush generation, and had sort of um, tried to find his way in that um, setting. He'd gone into the RAF for a while. That hadn't gone well for him at all. Um, and he'd decided he either wanted to be a writer or a painter um, and started to become a life model in London. He, he was basically hanging out in pubs and became a bit of a, a part of the London scene and was hired um, to, to pose for paintings and eventually was hired uh, as a model at the Royal College as well. Uh, Patty Kitchen um, was uh, the assistant registrar at the Royal College and Anne Quinn's close friend. So that was how Quinn got the job at the Royal College as a secretary, basically. Uh, Kitchen was uh, white. Um, Bowling was obviously black. They got married in 1960 and... Bowling was duly expelled from the college. Now, the, the ostensible reason that was given was because staff-student relationships were forbidden. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that this was essentially a graduate school, so a lot of the secretarial and administrative staff were the same age as the students, so it was kind of inevitable that they were going to get involved. Um, but, yes, it caused a bit of a storm because, um, obviously, there was this um, potentially kind of racial charge to the the aspect of him being removed from the college. Um, that was then resolved by Kitchen herself essentially resigning, going to another job, and Bowling was able to come back. And by the end of it, Bowling essentially won the silver medal in their graduating year to Hockney's kind of gold. And... But again, Bowling is this interesting figure who's just been really properly rediscovered in the last few years. So he had a major retrospective in 2017 in Germany, and then in 2019, Tate Britain gave him a full retrospective as well. So there's a lot of kind of filling in of that history that's starting to go on now as people realise that it wasn't just Hockney and his immediate um, crew of pop artists, but a bunch of other people who were doing really interesting stuff at the time. Absolutely. And um, we do have to stop now, but I want to really encourage people to check out your book because it, it includes things like the Lady Chatterley obscenity trial, um, the stoush between Norman Mailer and James Baldwin. Very, very interesting depiction of an extremely interesting 
period of history, and of course, lots of things about Billy Apple and that embrace of a new identity. He may have been the first New Zealand artist to do that, go to London and change his name, but he's not the last. Mm. Thanks so much, Anthony. Please stick around and we'll, we'll return yeah. to you in a moment. Uh, our third guest today is Christine Ferniho, the author of Mid-Century Living, the Butterfly House Collection. And this is a gorgeous book, rich in photography and illustrations, an account of her family's batch at Mungify Heads in Northland, and her mission to collect the decorative and applied arts of mid-century New Zealand, for which the batch, the Butterfly House, is now a unique showcase. I was supposed to be interviewing Christine live and in person at the Auckland Writers' Festival this year. And I'm also a small-time collector of Crown Lynn. So I'm delighted that she can join us today. Tenakwe, Christine, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's very nice to see Good you. Morning. Now, the Butterfly House is a much-loved and much-used family batch, but it's also a living museum in a certain way and a celebration of things made in New Zealand. And I wondered if you could talk about what sparked your collections. Was it nostalgia at first or did you begin at a certain age to see pieces of our collective past in a different way? Well, when, uh, when I was in the 50s and 60s collecting, I wasn't collecting the mid-century stuff. But when we bought this butterfly house, which is a fabricated, you know, um, corrugated, no, not corrugated iron, fibre-like batch. It was one of those ones with that sloped roof and it was poised over the Mangafai estuary. So it looked like this butterfly taking off. And one of the first things we bought was one of those painted butterflies, which I tried to research where they started, who, you know, what sort of decorating internationally or whether it was just a local New Zealand thing that put a butterfly on the side of their houses and it made it, I don't know, they're sort of happy. It's a bit sad that butterflies don't live enormously long lives once they spread out their wings. And my father was a lover of monarch butterflies. He would see them. And even today, when a monarch butterfly flies past over Christmas when they're out and about, um, we always think that it's grandpa coming back to see how we're going. Now, you divide the book by rooms, uh, Christine, but there are also subset categories like drinks and hearth and pokerware and tableware. What are the hardest things for you to find as part of your collections? Well, I didn't start off making a collection. I really started off interior decorating the house. So we had a number of shelves and I had done the house up in the 50s and 60s style, so lots of bright, bright, happy colours, which is still makes people smile when they walk in. And um, so I started to just be very general. I would have Venetian glass and then I'd have something from England and from that period, the period that Anthony talks of in the 50s and 60s. And then the more I started to fill my shelves, the more interested I got in things that were New Zealand made because the period the book demonstrates and the butterfly house is an example of is between the 40s and the late 70s. So it's a time we are now where borders are closed. We're a time where the handmade was celebrated, the homemade, the folk, where it was the golden area of manufacture, where we made our own glass and we made our own ceramics and we made our own plastics. We made our own beautiful fabrics. We had you know, Feltex rugs. And that was a period um, where the interior was unique to the handcraftness of the wife, who was mostly at home and mostly the, the uh, maker of things, and the chap in his shed, you know, turning out <clears throat> wooden trays or applying uh, tuis and kofai flowers to, um, you know, a tray made, manufactured by um, Woodcraft, for instance. What brings you most joy, would you say, to adopt Marie Kondo's phrase of, of the things in your house? If there was a fire and you were running out, what would you grab first? I'd take my kids. <laughs> I think I would take, funny enough, um, Jane Brinkley. Now, Jane Brinkley, um, they had a sale of Jane Brinkley because it was this wonderful collector called Nairi Hart who collected way more than me. And um, Jane Brinkley was 
um, married. She was born in about 1840, I think, and she married a guy, frankly, and he was a forester. And they moved with her family, who was Scandinavian, to Norsewood, hence the name Norsewood. And she had 11 kids. She was a midwife. She was a butcher. But she carved with a penknife and an adapted nail and she made the most extraordinary depiction of Maori carving. She was fascinated by Maori carving. So so many of her pieces are um, of tikis and of Fori Nui's and of, of Maori people standing, fuckers, bush scenes. She is truly a New Zealand folk artist. And I don't know whether there's many now. The other guy, of course, was Popeye Beavis, who put shells around the um, the acrylic paintings of steamships. So those two, I think I would take the, the folk because they're even more unique than, than, than um, you know, I don't know, a tea cosy and a, and a bit of crowdland swan. Now, you talk at length in the book about sort of the excitement of looking for things and finding things, and you're a big advocate of doing it in person rather than online, and I wondered why. Because I like to touch it and feel it and turn it over. And I, I just, and it's a joy of it. It's a hunt. To start with, and then it's the joy of finding something. You know, I was um, we're traveling on a road show to support um, a roadie to support, um, I don't know, just the environment in New Zealand and go to all the places that are wonderful. And we've been into some collectible shops and we'd be able to pick things up and put them down. And uh, I saw these lovely jugs in a shop in Cambridge, and I'm thinking with our rig up and, and, and buy them and see what a deal I can do. But it's, it's the touching and the coming in. And you almost know when you go to a shop um, whether it's going to be your stuff, almost from the front window, which is usually the latest editions. And we, I used to collect with my kids there, and we used to get in and start fighting. So we developed a system where we t- took turns in going into the shop. So the first person was allowed to go in for two minutes and name their bits, and then the next, then we'd all come in. And so you'd get the white aviation or the golden books or the tools out the back or the bits of crown because we all had these sort of passions. So it's, <laughs> it was a lovely time. That was before online, so I'm probably resentful about everything being online now. It's also your patriotic duty right now, isn't it, to buy yeah. things from New Zealand shops? Absolutely. I really, really believe that. <laughs> I've never done anything in my life. I've seen a few beanies. Chrissy, will you, oh, Christine, sorry, will you read to us from the book, please, from your prologue, I believe you're going to? I'd like to, this will probably explain, it opens up the book. Um, <clears throat> over time, the purpose of my collecting evolved. What started as a kind of interior decorating developed as my interest and passion grew for things, fine art as well as decorative and applied arts of mid-century New Zealand. It became more about rescuing history, a wonderful history lesson spoken in objects. This passion to fill the batch with treasures from the 1950s and 60s coincided fortuitously with a rash of local garage sales. Mangafai had been discovered by a new wave of beach lovers and batch owners who, much to our delight, were of a mind to throw out the old and be in with the new. History was being shed. The mid-century was being eschewed for the latest fashion. Important examples of that history, treasures like Kiwiana, Crown Lynn, Titian, folk art pieces by Jane Brinkley and Captain Adair's shell-encrusted acrylic paintings of steamships, became like endangered species. So many of the pieces bought in those early days are still used in a prized part of the decor and life at the Butterfly House. They tell their stories to all who will listen. This book, like the Butterfly House itself, is dedicated to these stories of industry and commerce, art and craft, shifting social patterns and ideas, changes in taste and beauty, the desires and ambitions and beliefs of New Zealanders from all walks of life, the objects of daily life, no matter how humble or seemingly inconsequential, are material records of history. Made at a certain time and place, they embody the values of the people who made them and the way of life of the people who used them. So that's my book. Let's talk more about this thing you mentioned, this exercise in rescuing history. Do you think in the 80s we we threw out too much perhaps and uh, saw things as kitsch 
or no longer of value, not realising that we would not have New Zealand-made things for very much. I think that's still so. There seems to be a somewhat connection in our head about if things are worth, you know, costly, therefore they have greater value. So people used to talk about heirlooms. Now, my heirlooms are a um, fish slice or egg slice that my father used every Sunday to do our poached eggs because he didn't go to church, but we did, and we had to have poached eggs when we got back. And so that sits in my cupboard as an heirloom from some Thing in my life that is, very, you know, was that Skyline production of wooden handled um, kitchen utensils. So heirlooms don't, and I think it is a sad time, and I think it doesn't have to have a monetary value to have a value. And New Zealanders were terribly enterprising, and they took all, they used flax and wood and shell and, and, um, just everything that was available, and particularly when the people came to make New Zealand their home um, from England, and and they they decided to um, um, uh, um, feel more comfortable if they knew they went out at Sunday painting. So they painted bush scenes and lakes, and then they made things from what was available: clay, flax, and that tied them to the land. And it was so different from where they'd come. My mother moved here from England in 1966. She'd married my father, a New Zealander, in London. In fact, it's Anthony and my, both my parents were in London in 1962, but they weren't being uh, quite as uh, avant-garde as the people in, in your book. But, um, but Christy, when they came here, my mother was appalled to discover, as she said, that New Zealand women could do everything. She said they could sew and they could cook and they could preserve and all these things that she had absolutely no idea how to do. Mm. That, that New Zealand was this industrious country of very capable people yes. and, uh, and she was a part of it. It's at number eight, Wayne, and behind you I can see a Bell Colt radio, which was the biggest selling valve radio in 1961. Something like 6,500 of your turquoise Bell radios were sold not that I'm talking about homemade there, but it's interesting when you look at those pieces that um, are now found in many houses. I mean, today, yesterday we went on a little trip around Hawke's Bay and, uh, to visit friends that Dick and Jude had when they lived down here. And houses are full of gorgeous swans and, and rattan beauties and macrame pot plants. And I don't know, they're just, it's just some sort of gaiety about what we made at that period. Oh, absolutely bright and colourful. That that radio was my grandparents, of course, and then my father had it in our garage, and now I have it um, usually somewhere else. But I moved it into view because I knew it would make you happy. <laughs> um, there are some things in your book that are controversial, I would say. Um, some things that you've collected that are no longer, shall we say, politically correct. Do you have any feelings about expunging these parts of our history? I think it's um, it's as a period and it's a time and. You know, I've got on the on one particular wall a whole pile of silhouettes, black plaster silhouettes of black people. That was, you know, really the best way you could decorate in the 50s and 60s in California. Probably the most offensive, uh, the in 1972, the Sports New Zealand Sports Foundation made Jim Beam bottles, which if you, you know, which also sing songs. Um, of Taraprahar dressed in a, a Navy outfit and Honiheki and Honiheki. And they are really taking the uh, appropriation and uh, I just, just sort of like a destruction of an image and turn it into an alcoholic bottle. And that I think is one of the worst. I, I sometimes, I, you know, and so many people attempted to carve um, and tea towels are bad. Tea towels, are, you know, have all sorts of Maori imagery on it which you used for your food and for washing up your dishes. So I think, I think nowadays that was a period where people loved the magic of the, of, the, of the Maori imagery and they used it because it was unique and different. And I don't think in any way were they thinking it was to denigrate or to not be respectful. It's only more recently that we've come to see that that is not the way to be. And there's a way more sensitivity to using Maori imagery in a way that is offensive or for jobs that are uh, counter to their beliefs. Absolutely. I'm going down to Rotorua soon on a little holiday. I'm doing my bits, my post-lockdown bits. 
mm-hmm. and we went to Rotorua every um, every year when I was a child because my father uh, worked for New Zealand Forest Products, which was based nearby. Mm-hmm. And I th- we have a number of extremely catch items picked up in those in those visits in the seventies from Rotorua, and even from before that when my grandmother, my Maori grandmother, went. And I think many of us have these things in our houses and struggle sometimes to make sense of them, but um, times change, do they not? They do, and it's funny, two things. One is go to Chris's shop on Hupapa Street because he has got three rooms of you know, predominantly um, New Zealand made. And when we walked into the Princess Gate Hotel, um, the floor, the carpet, was the same as my carpet at the beach, summer bouquet. We're staying there, Christine. We're staying at the Princess Gate Hotel. Well, I'd rent a room, you know, and downstairs they have these lovely lounging chairs where you can sit in front of the fire. But um, the mayor, Steve Chadwick, is just a wonderful mayor and very progressive. And they now got money to rebuild the um, museum, which was um, earthquake damaged or at risk of, and also a great spa centre. And there is an enormous lot of... um, going to Rotorua and being overlaid by the Maori um, welcome, the Maori traditions, the understanding, the te reo, the, it's just a very enveloping place and it's, it's been our centre of tourism. So it's a bit sad at the moment. So it's very good that you'll be going. We will go. And I have to say the reason I was drawn to the Princess Gate Hotel is because of another New Zealand literary connection Robin Hyde, the um, the writer who I've been doing some work on, stayed there when she was a young woman of 20 and uh, that was the hotel she stayed in, so we wanted to stay in it as well. So, yeah, we encourage people to be out there supporting New Zealand places and buying New Zealand-made things at New Zealand shops. And your book is just a a sort of a wondrous treasure chest of images that um, may have people going up to their attics or into their cupboards to look at things that they have forgotten about and need to reconsider. And so much was sort of, so much I've saved. And also it's the ultimate recycling. And you save it from the skip on the way to the landfill. So we want to reverse that trend and start holding things that we made in that golden period close. And maybe with borders closed for a while, there'll be another resurgence of things made and heirlooms given and New Zealand celebrated for what it, number eight plus why it can do. <laughs> Thanks so much, Christina. Let's bring back uh, Anne and Anthony um, because I realised in, in talking to you all today, obviously, that all your books explore art and identity in very different ways. Um, and also this notion of water um, is at play in all of your books. Anne, obviously, there's the world of water, a place that people can escape to, disappear in, but also find themselves in. It's this very great subconscious space, a dream place. Um, Anthony, you know, you're, the people you're writing about, someone like Billy Apple and David Hockney as well, they cross oceans to change identities and find out who they really are. If you think Hockney really comes of age and into his own in the US. Yeah. Billy Apple leaves New Zealand and becomes Billy Apple, becomes an entirely different person. Also thinking about Anne Quinn, who we discussed. I mean, she grew up in a seaside town. Her first novel is set in one. The sea is also a place she chooses to end her life in the 70s. Yeah. And then, Christine, your book, obviously your batch, The Butterfly House, is something that faces the sea. It faces the estuary and beyond it. And that openness to the sea and that also that living on the edge, which is sort of essential to the New Zealand experience where so many of us are close to the sea or close to more than one body of water. And it's absolutely a part of our identity. I have no idea where I'm going with this, but I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about water and being on the edge of things. I mean, Anthony, can I begin with you? I mean, do you think that Billy Apple would have become Billy Apple had he not crossed an ocean or two? Oh, no, absolutely not. I, you know, I, I think that um, and the interesting thing about Billy's progress, I think, in relation to that idea from Barry to Billy is that, you know, when he first leaves New Zealand, obviously he's doing it essentially in the way people did, which was, a, um, which was on an ocean liner. You know, this long trip from first across to Australia and then from there on up to um, Portsmouth, I think, was where he first landed and then was 
was kind of taken up to London. But then, of course, within a very short space of time, within about 18 months, him and David are booking plane tickets on a cut price flight from London to New York. So this idea of distance, I think, collapses very, very quickly in that moment. And I think that the the possibilities of a transatlantic identity for people like Hockney and Billy became possible precisely because of that that kind of huge shift in, in terms of the way that we think about distance. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's why I think it's such a key moment in the um, evolution of what we now understand to be contemporary art, because that collapsing of distance, uh, you know, across borders and across oceans and things, um, suddenly means that you can have these very, very different conversations between cultures and, and, um, and cities, really. So that London to New York relationship, I, I think it's absolutely the case that Billy would never have become Billy had he not had that experience, first of leaving New Zealand, but ultimately that ability to go, oh, New York's actually just there and it's a, it's a flight away rather than a, a continent away. You know? I, I think that, that was kind of key to his identity at that time. And Anne, in your novel, Jaja is rediscovering herself as an artist and a person at the same time. And also for her, that travel is key, going to Tibet to get out of the place she's known so well, Beijing, that her identity is really bound up in. Um, I mean, when you look at her moving forward from your novel, from the boundaries of your, of your novel, is her art going to be something that she continues with? Is that part of her new identity? Definitely, um, for sure. I mean, she traveled to Tibet. I think oftentimes you can find perhaps more clarity in a, in a place that you've never been to before in this strange and alien place um, than you can somewhere where you are very familiar with. And for her, going to Tibet sort of opened up um, not only her sense of clarity on her life, but also uh, on her own art. And it, it opened up possibilities um, within her art that she had never been able to, to, to realize. And, you know, in the book we talk about, um, or she talks about how she's always been fascinated with, with water. Um, and because, it, because she's never been really able to, to capture it in her paintings, she's always found it being, you know, one of the hardest things to, to paint um, because it's, it's, it's simultaneously mysterious and clear and its properties are really fascinating to her and towards the end she I don't want to give away anything but she's sort of comes back to her painting and wants to you know try to paint water again and I think in that sense she she definitely will be um much more liberated in her in her painting and and painting water in a way is a metaphor for her you know, changing her entire sort of outview on life. Yeah, absolutely. As it was for Hockney, I suppose, with the swimming pool series, the, mm. the trying to find the, the elusive nature of water, but also, I mean, it's sort of this deep attraction. I'm wondering for you, Christine, if, if it's the opposite is the case. I mean, both Anthony and Anna talking about people who needed to go somewhere else in order to become themselves as artists. And my, and my husband is just alerting me to the fact that we're already over time, but... I'm very keen to to think about your book in, in a way of us rediscovering our own art within our own country, things that perhaps we had contempt for or grew contempt for because they were too familiar. And uh, your book is asking us to look at things afresh. I mean, is that true, do you think? Yes, it is, it is to look at things afresh. And if I could just um, speak about Anne, when she read, wrote a, she read her piece about how her carpet turned into water, um, I speak quite a lot with um, young school children, and she talks about, Anne says, no, I'm not uh, um, magic realism. It's imagination. It's imagination that all of us need. And when I go out to kids, I get them to go like this, up and down with their hands, and I'm getting them to keep their imagination warm. You know, because if we ever start losing our imagination, which is so vital to creative thought and to ideas and to changing how and where we live, I say to the kids, you know, always keep your imagination warm because once it goes cold, imagine what a world it would be. We wouldn't see Anne talk about getting out of bed and falling into that sea and that lovely light. We wouldn't be able to imagine beyond, you know, the, the 
table which is brown and got four legs. So I suppose I think water adds a magic to living all the way through and imagination is such a powerful, powerful part of our lives. And I should have said, obviously, in the introduction for you, Christine, that you are very, very involved in literacy and encouraging reading up and down the country, that you are one of the co-founders of of Duffy Books and have made a tremendous difference to access in New Zealand for our young people to books and stories and imagination. All three of the books we've discussed today have actually really made me want to spend more time making things or dreaming, daydreaming, which is the first point for anyone's creativity. So thank you so much to Anu, Anthony Burt and Christine Fernihoe and to, uh, for joining us today and talking so eloquently. Uh, thank you also to everyone else who's made this episode possible, especially the Auckland Writers Festival team, Auckland Live and Copyright Licensing New Zealand. Kia ora also to the sponsors and patrons listed on the festival website. Thank you so much for your general support for this, this wonderful series. Remember, uh, viewers, this episode can be seen again on the festival website. If you'd like a copy of the 2020 Festival Program, an excellent reading guide for the rest of your year, please just contact the festival and they'll send one out to you. Uh, tune in again next week when our guests are the Nigerian novelist and poet Helon Habila on his latest novel, Travellers. The New Zealand poet Freya Daly Sadgrove with her debut poetry collection, Head Girl. And another New Zealand writer, Philippa Swan, discussing her debut novel, The Night of All Souls, a book that seeks out Edith Wharton, another of my favourite writers, in the afterlife. So see you same time, same place next week. Matewa.